Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hello, Darren. It's Tuesday, the 21st of September today, and the past week has seen a genuinely significant event or perhaps even a turning point in Australian foreign policy. I am talking, of course, of the announcement of AUKUS, Australia, UK, US, a new trilateral security partnership. AUKUS will, to quote from the joint press release from the three leaders, strengthen the ability of each to support our security and defence interests, building on our long-standing and ongoing bilateral ties. We will promote deeper information and technology sharing. We will foster deeper integration of security and defence-related science, technology, industrial bases and supply chains. And in particular, we will significantly deepen cooperation on a range of security and defence capabilities. It continues, as the first initiative under AUKUS, recognising our common tradition as maritime democracies, we commit to a shared ambition to support Australia in acquiring nuclear-powered submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. Today, we embark on a trilateral effort of 18 months to seek an optimal pathway to deliver this capability. We will leverage expertise from the US and the UK, building on the two country submarine programs to bring an Australian capability into service at the earliest achievable date. The development of Australia's nuclear powered submarines would be a joint endeavor between the three nations with a focus on interoperability, commonality and mutual benefit. Now, after mentioning Australia's commitment to non-proliferation, the statement continues saying, recognising our deep defence ties built over decades, today we also embark on further trilateral collaboration under AUKUS to enhance our joint capabilities and interoperability. These initial efforts will focus on cyber capabilities, AI, quantum technologies, and additional undersea capabilities. End quote. That's a long quote from a statement, Alan, but as everybody probably knows, the Nuclear Submarines Agreement required Australia to scrap a $90 billion contract with the French state-owned Naval Group that had been signed when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister. The French were predictably furious, and we'll talk about their reaction a bit later. Now, if Australia's plan to acquire and or build at least eight nuclear-powered attack submarines comes to fruition, and this is a big if, it would make the country the third largest operator of nuclear-powered attack submarines in the world, behind the US and China, and even ahead of the UK. The British National Security Advisor described this deal as, quote, perhaps the most significant capability collaboration in the world anywhere in the past six decades, end quote. Now, Alan, there's a lot to talk about today, but can we start with putting this decision in historical context? Do you agree with the UK's National Security Advisor? How big a deal is this and why? 
And will you need to rush out a third edition of your book on Australian foreign policy, Fear of Abandonment? It's the most triumphant vindication of the book's title and central thesis that any author could hope for, Darren. So I was delighted. Look, in the space of just a couple of days, I've changed my mind several times now about how big a deal this is. It depends on a whole lot of very complicated factors coming together. The initial announcement was, to say the least, broad brush. So I think I would describe it as a very big aspiration, which if it comes off, would deeply change Australia's international relationships and role. I don't think it's a positive development, and we'll talk about that, but I certainly wouldn't minimise its significance. Indeed, and there are a lot of angles to cover, including the technical feasibility, the cost, the French reaction, and the varied reactions of states in our region. But let's really try to start with the biggest question being, is this on balance a good idea? And Alan, I think this might be the first time that you and I have dueling op-eds <laughs> on the issue. Yeah. Helpfully, they can be read as coming down on opposite sides of the issue, giving us scope to debate today. Yours appeared in the Australian Financial Review on Friday and mine, co-authored with friend of the podcast, Natasha Kassam of the Lowy Institute, came out in the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday. But given that we were sort of roughly speaking on opposite sides of the issue in our op-eds, how about I go first and make the case for this decision to get the debate started? Go for it. Well, you won't be surprised that I've developed a bit of a theoretical model which rests on two core assumptions. And it has to start with China. We all know China's economic and military capabilities are growing rapidly. And we know that there are a range of ways in which Beijing's interests clash with Australia's. So the first assumption is that given a, the sheer and impressive scale of China's growing military capabilities, especially in its navy, and B, uncertainty about Beijing's present and future intentions on how it will use those capabilities. And in some cases, you'd go stronger than uncertainty, for example, the expectation that Taiwan could well be invaded. But given all this, then prudent risk management by Australia and its partners requires efforts to augment our own ability to deter aggression. As China's capabilities grow, the deterrent must grow along with it. The second assumption is that the relative capability and willpower of the US is declining such that the US cannot be expected to provide this deterrent alone as it could have essentially under unipolarity. But unless everyone in the region is going to get nuclear weapons themselves, and we'll mention that a bit later, the region still needs Washington to play a major role in providing deterrence. The question then is how to create the conditions such that it is in Washington's interests to do so. So if one accepts those two assumptions, then the stable security equilibrium that I see emerging is one where the US and regional states work together to provide that growing deterrent. But this creates a collective action problem. It's very costly for any single state to join such a balancing coalition because such an action would be viewed at its inception as highly provocative by Beijing. Most states in the region have no interest right now in poking the dragon like this. So they will try to free ride, pass the buck. But if Washington, as a result, is left alone to pay the costs of deterrence and take those risks, 
that lowers the chance that the US will stay engaged over the medium to long term. So how do you solve this collective action problem? Well, you need first movers to bear the initial startup costs to help set up a new security architecture of cooperation, of security cooperation, that down the track will represent this augmented deterrent. I'm thinking about AUKUS or the Quad as another example, as a kind of multilateralizing of the hub and spoke alliance model that the US has built in the region over the past 70 plus years. Not to create an Asian NATO, but a series of crisscrossing minilateral mechanisms that are still founded upon the US doing much of the heavy lifting, but with its allies and partners also contributing much more substantially to a collective deterrent, which then signals to Beijing that it is increasingly likely that the region will react forcefully in response to military aggression. Importantly, doing this effectively is much more than just nuclear submarines, but a much broader technological terrain in which deterrent capabilities will be needed. And AUKUS, I think, foreshadows this. So in this model, AUKUS is the proof of concept for a type of cooperation that is a real step up from the quad. Australia is taking on new and additional risks to demonstrate that Washington can and will be supportive in substantial ways and is drawn in because Canberra is putting additional skin in the game. If, a big if, if AUKUS can work, this would then create a practical pathway and a psychological permission structure for a balancing coalition to grow in the future. I mean, I think it's... It's, it's unimaginable that you would see a country like Indonesia joining today, but 10 years ago, I mean, it seems unimaginable that Australia would do this. Well, not, not really. I mean, to be fair, the debate about whether nuclear subs make sense for Australia has been going on for a long time. I think it's true to say that 10 years ago, the US wouldn't have been doing this. Mm. And I guess 10 years ago, the US was a much more confident military power than it is today. But I think what I was getting at is that we as Australia are doing something today that is perceived so provocatively by China. And that I would have found hard to imagine 10 years ago. And anyway, my point is that the, the politics on these things can change quickly. And Beijing's conduct has been central to changing them. I mean, if you think back to 2017, Australia was the first country to impose a formal ban on Huawei. And which I think somewhat analogously created both the practical contribution of, of doing this rigorous feasibility study as well as this psychological permission structure that enabled other countries to see that prohibitions were doable and follow in their own ways. So here with AUKUS, Australia again is a first mover. If we can make this work, we create a pathway for others to join 5, 10, 20 years from now. This is a long game, but building the infrastructure for deterrence has to start now. It's risky, it's scary, we are crossing a Rubicon in terms of our defence policy. But to me, the alternatives seem no less risky if you accept my starting assumptions. Okay, so that's a huge block of me talking to start off, Alan. Sorry for the length, but I think it, it needed some time to set out the model. How do you react to that, Alan? And what drives your basic view of the merits of AUKUS or lack thereof? I was talking recently to a group of Australian military and security folk about grand strategy, and I asked all of them for their views about the future. One of them said to me that the only option for Australia 
was to become what he called a station-free association with the United States. Now, I'm not sure if he meant it this way, but that's the sort of relationship, outsourcing defence, that the US has with the, you know, the Federated States of Micronesia or Palau. At the time, I thought, well, that's a rather dramatic response to Australia's position, but as it turned out, maybe not. Look, you and I do come out on different sides here, so it's really important, given our mutual respect and regard, that we talk it through as best we can. Let me just suggest first that the model you've drawn is indicative of the way we each think about the world. That is, I come to it first through the perspective of the messy contingency of foreign policy, biology, if you like, and you start from the clarity of fundamental principles of IR, more like physics. For me, the single worst thing about this decision, if it comes off, is that it binds Australia inexorably and for the foreseeable future to a certain trajectory. Our options in the world are suddenly limited to a single track. So look, to make things clearer, can we just begin by agreeing or disagreeing on some of the central points? So my first question to you is, what is AUKUS? Is it a treaty? What are the Brits doing there and why? Again, with my IR scholars hat on, I think of it as a signal of shared security interests and an agreement to engage in practical cooperation to develop defensive capabilities across multiple domains. Now, whether it's a formal treaty with some kind of promise to come to the aid of each other, in my view, is only relevant to the strength of the signal being sent. And as I said last episode, nothing is 100% in international relations in terms of commitments. As for the Brits, Look, I've seen talk that they might be able to help get around US congressional limits on transferring nuclear-related technology, but I don't know the substance of that yet. Otherwise, you know, we can see why the Brits would want to do it. It's a clear sort of statement of a post-Brexit Britain that the Johnson government is embracing. And as you pointed out in your piece in the Fin Review, theoretically, I see the contribution that they're making is in helping multilateralize the hub-and-spoke model by bringing in someone from outside the region. So they bring nothing that couldn't have been achieved equally well under an ANZUS banner, but with the added complication of branding us as the junior partner in an Anglosphere grouping made very explicit by Boris Johnson's reference to his kindred. Out in, uh, in Australia. Look, rhetorical flourishes aside, I, mean, I don't know whether this could have been done under ANZUS. Of course it could. Look, if as advertised, it is about cooperating on a range of new and tangible security domains, and I don't just mean submarines, I see merit in creating a new partnership to do so. Other than the Japanese and the Indians in the quad, the rest of the region doesn't have the appetite to do this because of how Beijing will react. So in your, in your view, the other countries of the region either don't know their own interests or are too scared to assert them. So when they talk about their desire and confidence that they can manage their relations with both the US and China in an equilibrium, that's not valid? That is valid, and I, I'll, I'll come to the, the notion of a regional equilibrium in a bit. But I, look, the language I would use on this point is that many of our regional partners do not see it as in their interests to engage in this kind of defence 
security cooperation right now. You know, again, with my IR scholars hat on, I'm reading the trend lines in how the balance of power is shifting, and I see it as plausible that they will change their minds in the future. However, the process of beginning to achieve a new balance has to start somewhere. And while maybe bringing in the UK is the lowest hanging fruit, it is still a concrete step towards multilateralizing this hub and spoke model, as I already said. So by multilateralizing, you just mean throwing the Brits into the mix. <laughs> I mean, I mean that exactly, Alan. Yes. Yeah. I mean, clearly yeah. you're not okay. impressed okay. by this <laughs> and you've been consistent in your criticism that Australia has been too willing to turn to its Anglo friends without doing the hard work of engaging with our neighbours. And I have agreed with you in previous episodes, but my assessment here is that there isn't the political space to do this kind of security cooperation in the region right now, other than in the quad. And I am more positive than you, I suppose, on the idea of creating a minilateral partnering because of its break from the old model of hub and spoke, even as I accept that if it stays the way it is, just with the three of them, it is severely limited in in its long-term potential. But still, I, I don't want to discount the UK as a capable security actor, one of the most capable in Europe, albeit diminished from being outside of the EU now. Okay, okay. So do we agree that this proposal integrates Australia into the United States military to an unprecedented degree, especially if some of the gap in capability is filled through the leases or stationing of US Royal Navy submarines here and reinforced by the new forces that Peter Dutton has been talking about? And in that case, Do we agree that it will make no sense for Australia, for example, to produce another defence white paper that's not entirely consistent with the US strategy? The submarines clearly have no autonomous way of operating. I agree that in practical terms, this obviously raises the costs in future of departing from US policy in a major way on a given issue, and certainly in deciding if we did to go much more independent and reorient our foreign and security policies entirely. Those will become harder things to do. I don't agree or fully understand why we wouldn't be able to produce white papers and make judgments and plans based upon our own interests. I think in part because the logic of this model, as I'm thinking about it, is that Australia has to take more responsibility, a notion endorsed by the Defence Strategic Update, I might add, because that's what it will take to keep the US engaged. So yes, I think a step further in that direction, closer to the US, which has benefits and costs, but I don't see it as much of a step change, although maybe I'm splitting hairs. In that case, do you agree that the proposal, the whole proposal, not just the subs, but the entire agreement, marks a fundamental shift in Australian foreign policy and other than in very minor ways, it makes it fanciful to imagine any Australian action that might seriously irritate Washington. I feel like you're setting me up like a good defence lawyer, Alan. You sort of, do you agree on this, <laughs> this and this, and then I'm going to get whacked and a guilty verdict is going to follow. Look, I agree it's a step further in that direction, but I don't see anything as absolute. And remember, just as we are binding ourselves to the US one step further, We're also binding them to us and and, and binding them to the region. I mean, what you see as a bug, I see 
in many ways as a feature. I don't need to tell you this, Alan, but for the benefit of our listeners, the fear of entrapment, which seems to be motivating what I'm hearing from you, is the mirror of the fear of abandonment, the title of your recent book. Both fears represent discrete risks. One, the one you're mentioning, is the damage about what the US could do or will fail to do if we rely on it too much. And the other, the fear of abandonment, is the damage that China could do. Remember, I started with my assumption about the uncertainty regarding China's capabilities and rise. Now, both the fear of abandonment and the fear of entrapment are real and legitimate concerns. We have to manage them. And unfortunately, they appear to be in direct opposition here. There's a zero-sum nature to this in the debate, I think. And reasonable people will disagree about which is more serious, I guess, as we are here. You seem to think more than I do that the states of the region will be secretly pleased by this development. We'll have to see, I guess, what what happens. But I th- I think there's a a lot of wishful thinking on the part of some in Australia about this. I think they hear people in the region saying, you know, publicly we we want the region to be free of great power conflict, and then behind their scenes saying to us. But, you know, we, we really want you there. Whereas I think it's at least as plausible that the we really want you there is what they're saying to us because they don't want to upset us. Yeah, I wouldn't want to come to firm conclusions about how the region thinks about it now. Yeah, we know the Malaysians are upset. It seems that the Indonesians are quite displeased too. On the other side, it seems like the Philippines and, and Singapore are less hostile to this. And so I think there are going to be varied positions just within ASEAN And I won't be surprised if ASEAN comes out with some statement that isn't what we would want in the the next few days or weeks. But again, my point here is, is really about how I see the future unfolding, that it is possible that they will change their minds. And in my reading of the directory of international affairs is that it's actually more than possible. Like I would, I would think that it's actually, I don't want to put a percentage number to it, but you know, I'll use the word likely to some extent. And what I mean by that is that they will conclude at some point that the costs of taking a more directly robust position against China finally become outweighed by the benefits. But that if they come to that conclusion in the future, there's going to be no pathway for them to do it by themselves. And so the security architecture needs to be there to enable them to do that. To me, this looks like the beginning of a balancing coalition that I see crystallising further into the future, especially if China, or because China, continues to act the way that it has. I think it will push more states into the balancing column. Now, there is, of course, a risk of alienation of going too far, which is why in our op-ed we call for clear but very calm commitments. And I would urge the Australian government and and all our partners to be very measured about how they talk about these issues into the future. Look, we have the substantive mechanisms to work on now. We don't need the rhetoric. We just need to do the work. But look, let me put it another way. One of my takeaways from our interesting chat with Gary Quinlan just a few episodes ago, the former ambassador to Indonesia, was that ASEAN's success and therefore the security of Southeast Asia in particular is fundamentally dependent on a strategic balance. You know, ASEAN doesn't have the room to operate if an external military power, be it the US or China, is the sole dominant force. And for a long time, the issue was, of course, checking 
America's military might and its influence. But I have to imagine more and more across the region are going to conclude that the primary risk of unbalance will come from China. And we've already heard in recent years that Southeast Asia does want the US to become more engaged, of course, on their terms. <laughs> My prediction, and of course, it's just a prediction, is that over time the region will come to be relieved that the US is committing itself to the region, but accept that that commitment is coming in a different form than it did in the 1990s or the 2000s, a different model for which AUKUS represents the initial concept. You're putting an awful lot of weight on a what's essentially a tech-sharing agreement as a model. Now, second point, do you agree that the only conclusion that China will draw from this is that Australia is a decisive opponent in a long-term strategic conflict and that we will now find ourselves locked into a permanent state of mistrust and that Beijing will feel that it only has to deal with Washington, not Canberra, on any important issue? My guess is that the conclusion in Canberra is that Beijing has already come to this view, that that ship has sailed, essentially. And we can debate the causes of that. We have debated the causes of that. We've discussed at length before the, the poor execution of certain policies in the past. But look, that's where we are now. And my read of the China experts I trust is that the Xi government absolutely believes that it's in a long-term strategic competition with the US and is doing everything it can to ensure its security, which requires it to prevail in that competition and use force if necessary. And I can see little in the actual conduct of Chinese foreign policy that persuades me that any other than this is true. And so if this is correct, is there a big difference between Australia's position vis-a-vis -vis China before this announcement and after it? Of course, this is going to make us appear relatively more hostile at the margins, but I'm not convinced that there was a pathway that was going to change that, given everything the government has done to this point. You know, as for Beijing dealing with Washington rather than Canberra, I think that's a really good point. I don't have a good response, you know, other than what I've already said, which is it's hard to imagine us ever dealing with Beijing again bilaterally on terms that we enjoyed prior to 2016, for example. But having said that, they are going to have to engage with us on trade issues, which are important. For example, just this past week, China did apply to join the CPTPP, and we do have some leverage there to via the accession negotiation process to get them to talk with us about these issues and economic coercion. But I think this almost proves my point that if we're going to be effective, it will be because we're doing so through multilateral channels with like-minded partners who in this case, for example, would agree that economic coercion of the kind that we've experienced should be front and centre of, of accession negotiations. But Alan, I want to kind of explore the counterfactual now. You've clearly expressed concern about giving up sovereign control of our security policy. And I don't disagree on the direction of the change, but I might on the question of degree. But I also see it as somewhat inevitable you know, have small states in balancing coalitions throughout history ever had that much agency? I guess, you know, we need a historian here to tell us. But I see in a relative sense, we in Australia are facing inevitable declines in our wealth and power in the decades ahead as Asia continues to rise. Our strategic autonomy, if we're going to use that phrase, is going to erode anyway, especially under conditions of major power competition. However, 
one area where we might hopefully have more influence, more agency, is in influencing the United States. To do what and how? People of my generation, as you've reminded me from time to time, are sometimes accused, wrongly, I believe, of thinking about China through a sort of sepia-tinged glow of nostalgia. Aren't you in danger of doing the same with the US? I ask this because just this morning I had in my email inbox a new piece from Brookings in Washington called, Is the US Headed for Another Civil War? Now, apparently, a plurality of Americans, 46% in a recent opinion poll, think that it is. The authors of the article concluded not this is a ludicrous idea, what are you talking about? But much more, you know, soberly, this is not inevitable, but we can't assume that it cannot happen. Now, just think about that, not about whether you agree or disagree, but that a think tank like Brookings from the respectable centre of American discourse even feels the need to publish something like that. Look, as, as someone who is intensely focused on US politics, I agree. There are huge risks. I think my overall assessment is closer to thinkers like Ross Douthat and Bruno Mesheish, which is that there is a bit of a performative unreality to all of this, that, that as Mesheish has said, that many Americans are living in a virtual reality, which you could all argue both the Trump and Biden administrations fall into that category. But still, I don't want to dismiss this as being a non-thing. It definitely is a threat. It is a risk. The US is more likely to implode than at any point since the first civil war and the reconstruction period afterwards. And I would include in that even the violence of the 1960s. But look, if the US does implode and, and withdraws from the region as a result, the question of how to manage the risks posed by regional dominance by Beijing does not go away. Rather, it actually starts to thrust questions like actually acquiring nuclear weapons into the mainstream. But look, I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me return to the counterfactual. How would preserving our strategic flexibility have helped us? And can you engage, Alan, directly with my starting point or the assumption that Beijing is acquiring the capabilities that one day mean we'll be able to exercise really zero influence over it? I mean, do you agree this is a risk? And if so, how should we manage it? What is the alternative pathway that would give Beijing pause, you know, to cause the Chinese leadership to question the inevitability of their ascendancy to regional dominance? Or do you think this is not necessary? I think we're coming to something like the nub of our divergence here, because I simply don't see the strategic situation in the region in the zero-sum terms that you just expressed. You seem to point to a world in which we, meaning I guess not just Australia, but all the countries of East Asia, are inexorably heading to a point where overwhelming Chinese power will force us into a situation where we can exercise, as you put it, zero power, and the rest of the region become zombies. Now, I think China is highly likely to go to a point where it is the largest economy in the world by any measure, but I think it will always be operating in a region of other large and willful states, including the United States and Japan, India, and the rest of us. 
and it will be entirely possible for individual states within that area to resist the sort of dominance that you talked about. Yeah, that's really interesting, Alan, because in many ways, AUKUS is the beginning of that kind of resistance. I mean, there's a, a very complicated debate about structure and agency here, that there, there are forces that cause countries to, to, you know, to balance against power or to balance against threats. And I detect kind of a, a, an inbuilt assumption that these mechanisms can act to constrain China in the future, but how do those mechanisms actually materialize? And the materializing is through defense cooperation, the formation of alliances and external partnerships, to think of the Kenneth Waltz formulation, to check that power. So maybe we're just debating sort of what is really just a long-term and recurring pattern in international politics, which is, you know, the formation of balances of power that kind of happen if you believe the realists automatically because of the structure. But there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth in the moment <laughs> yeah. about the process yeah. of it actually happening. Okay, I'm going to change the subject very quickly. <laughs> okay. Back to the economy. No, look, seriously, that's an issue, but I'll... I'll have to reflect on it. I think both of us were expressing, I mean, you ended up not at the place you started from, I think. Anyway, new topic, the economy. We've agreed that the Chinese are going to be mightily pissed off with mm. this. And uh, I just wanted you to reflect on what you think the consequences of that will be for Australia over time, especially for our economy. I mean, the economy is what enables our society to prosper and to hold together. You've already spoken about a likely relative decline in Australia's power within the region. So do you agree that this development, that is, you know, nuclear submarines, will increase defence expenditure probably by a full 1% to three, around 3% of GDP, and that that will have consequences for the Australian economy and the things we want to do in areas like education and health into the future? I, I certainly can't disagree with you, Alan, so I would be prepared to stipulate it for the purposes of this argument. But again, from I, I guess it's time now to circle back to the nuclear question, because you know, maybe the most prominent sceptic of the US's power and, and credibility into the future is Hugh White. And he obviously wrote this book in 2019 called Defence of Australia. And in it, he floats the idea that we would spend even more on defence, you know, 4 or 5% of GDP, if I remember correctly. And because that is the inevitable consequence of becoming more independent in our security policy. Now, I won't get to nuclear weapons yet, but he does also then raise, you know, at least the need for a debate about a nuclear deterrent. So my question for you, Alan, is what is the alternative? We have to spend more under this scenario, but wouldn't we have to spend even more if we wanted to be more independent from the United States? I mean, don't we need to do something to manage the risk of China becoming more dominant and to offer more of a deterrent? Or is this just an argument for obtaining nuclear weapons? I mean, if one thinks the US is going to withdraw entirely and collapse, you know, or, or led, be led by President Trump again, would an asymmetric nuclear strategy make the most sense? Super duper, yeah. If we want to encourage <laughs> nuclear proliferation throughout the region and add that to the existing list of the consequences of climate change and great power conflict. Now, I'd, I think we can both agree, I think, that that's not the way forward. Well, maybe we can't agree. I don't think we should be getting nuclear weapons, no. But there are risks and invidious choices everywhere we look. 
And look, I think our disagreement is based less on differing assessments of China's intentions. I mean, you haven't really spoken about what you would expect China to do. And my model, as I've said, makes worst case assumptions about that. But the difference is in the capability of the region to check Beijing regardless of what China's intentions are. And you don't see sufficient benefits from AUKUS as a pathway to pushback compared to the costs. And so, yeah, for me, we should be getting nuclear weapons. We need the US's nuclear umbrella. It still remains a central component of my model of strategic equilibrium. And I look, I don't want to discount the proliferation risks inherent in us acquiring you know, the, even the nuclear submarine capabilities for, for, for propelling them. There are obviously lots of operational decisions ahead. There's going to need to be skillful diplomacy. But I think my point is that sort of the status quo doing nothing or, or doing something that is not ramping up to 5% of GDP and it's not acquiring nuclear weapons, I see risks in that pathway as well in continuing out with a sort of some loose version of the status quo. And my assessment is, or at least the argument that I'm building with this model, is that the risks associated with that pathway are relatively greater because of what it would potentially enable China to do. Finally, you know, on our economic relationship with China, I'm not sure that this will accelerate closure between the two economies anymore than if that past week hadn't happened. Look, we know I still think that the, the Beijing is is relentlessly focused on self-sufficiency and, and ensuring resource and food and security. And so I think that iron ore is on borrowed time. But we've also seen, even amid all of the trade tensions from the past 18 months, the trade does continue when it's in China's interest for it to continue. And yeah, my argument would be that the response is that it's going to become even more essential for Australia to promote openness in the international economic system, to promote trade governed by rules, as we are trying to do through the TPP. I certainly agree with you about trade governed by rules, but I, I wouldn't agree that Beijing is relentlessly focused on self-sufficiency. It still has very global economic aims, though I certainly agree that they'll be seeking sources of iron ore outside Australia as soon as they can. But back to the question of the ratcheting up of military expenditure, is this more likely to lead to increased tensions in the region or to the Chinese shrugging their shoulders and saying, game over? I'm not sure what you mean by game over, and that could be a positive or a negative development depending on <laughs> are they vacating the field or are they just deciding to act decisively sooner rather than later? Yeah, no, I, I meant vacate the field. Yeah, yeah. My old PhD classmate, Oriana Scala-Mastro, who is now you know, a very prominent analyst of Chinese security, I was talking to her earlier this morning and she has a great line, which is China can be unhappy and deterred or happy and undeterred, like you, there's, you've got one or the other. And so I think what we're seeing here is, is that China is engaging in remarkably rapid military modernization, and it is disconcerting to much, if not most, of the region. And so what you are seeing is an effort to build a response to that, right, that, that build some deterrent capabilities or augment deterrent capabilities in response to that rapid accumulation. You know, China doesn't get a free pass because they went first, and this is just our response. Surely the Chinese side only moved first in the sense that as they became richer, they strengthened their military capacity to challenge US dominance in their near waters, and they 
built on from there. I, I agree with that. But from your perspective, is that challenge to American power itself impermissible? You know, where should China's limits lie? It's a serious question I've got. You know, what 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 do you think is permissible? Yeah, look, that's a, a, I mean, it's not just a serious question. It's a really, really good one. And I think a really deep one because I, I absolutely cannot, you know, disagree, I cannot gainsay that there is a degree of legitimacy in China's military modernization. Like countries are allowed to develop their militaries. So the question then is, where are the limits? And I think, look, those who are broadly skeptical of China's military posture do need to do more work to spell out what those limits are. It's sort of beyond my capabilities to do it in any fine-grained detail here. But let me put one broad principle out there, which is a commitment to resolve disputes peacefully. And the pointy end, and this comes to sort of our op-ed from yesterday, the pointy end of this issue is Taiwan. You know, China says that this is an internal matter and so no one has any right to say anything about it. We say that we don't want you to invade. Like we want this dispute, however you characterise it, to be resolved peacefully. To me, this is the definition of the kind of zero-sum issue that I'm sort of worried about and that the Taiwan issue really forces one to confront our strategic landscape head-on because it poses the most concrete of deterrence questions. Should third parties be contributing right now to a deterrent to Chinese invasion? And if yes, should Australia be part of that deterrent to help protect what is a flourishing democracy of some 24, 25 million people? Well, sure, but this is a hell of a commitment by Australia. That is, you know, the if it goes ahead, the purchase of eight nuclear-powered submarines. And there are other ways of managing this. We, Australia, are not going to be in a position to make an iota of military difference for decades now in any case. And haven't you fallen into the trap of assuming that the only way countries can be deterred is by big, powerful war machines? Maybe. On Taiwan, that is my conclusion. Whether that is a trap or the correct strategic assessment, I don't know. But Alan, I mean, you mentioned there are other ways. I mean, what are some of the other ways you think we could deal with this? Well, the same way we try to change lots of things in the world, you know, from whaling to the Uyghurs, that is through constant pressure, in this case by moves to engage Taiwan more openly, short of diplomatic recognition, by sanctions if necessary. One of the few things I'm sure of in international relations is that if Taiwan were to declare its independence, whatever the military deterrence in place, the Chinese government would respond militarily because that really would be perceived as a serious challenge to CCP control on the mainland, given the centrality of Taiwan to the ambitions of the party state. And most Western analysts, I think, agree that continuing political control is the party's central aim. Yeah, look, I agree. I agree that a declaration of independence by Taiwan would be a disaster. And that's long been the fear of Western analysts. It's more the fear of, uh, of sort of being entrapped, I suppose, by drawn into the, into the conflict. But look, the Taiwan watchers I know think the situation has shifted now. You know, they, they look at what the Chinese leadership says about Taiwan. They look at what the PLA is saying about this. Uh, they look at forced posture. And that is leading more and more to conclude that not only that China is preparing for an invasion, but are coming to the judgment 
that they will be able to do so at acceptable cost, regardless of whether there is an independence declaration just of their own volition, of their own choice. And again, actually, this makes me think of, of, of Oriana, Dr. Mastro, my, my PhD classmate who has a recent piece in foreign affairs that basically makes exactly this argument. Now, her views are not unanimously held. There is much disagreement on, on what China's assessments are, but it's, it's coming into focus and, and, and really rising up as a real possibility. So I think, look, this is a point of clear disagreement for us. I have much less faith on this issue in particular that any other mechanism of statecraft can be effective in a decisive way. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. China should be under no illusions that it will face diplomatic isolation, ideally economic, severe economic consequences, but that it also needs to face a hard military deterrent. You know, the prospect of unacceptable costs being imposed upon it as an effective deterrent to an invasion. I think deterrence has to play a central role on, on this issue. And do you think that Australia can be a significant a meaningful component of that deterrent, do you? No, I don't think that we are a meaningful component of that deterrent. I see that, but I also think that it would be counterproductive if we were to wash our hands and say that we'll be not, not involved at all. When it comes to Australia's involvement, I see Taiwan then being part of a larger picture, that if we are serious about contributing to regional stability, we need to be signaling to the US as well as the broader region and China that we are going to be willing to be involved in all aspects of deterrent to maintain stability. Like if we care about stability in the region, we should care about Taiwan not being invaded amongst other things so that we can't, we can't free ride this one. That if we care, we will pass the buck, whatever international relations term you want to use. So no, we won't make an iota of difference, I would imagine, if there was a Taiwan contingency, but it is about what we're projecting, about what, what regional security means to us and what we're prepared to help procure it. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm running out of breath here, Anna. We, we, we're definitely getting on in what is a very long podcast. Look, and I think before we, we move on, what I've tried to do here is build what I think is a plausible and coherent intellectual argument for the merits of AUKUS as a concept. And I think there are many critiques, you've, you've leveled many, but there are many other ones which will relate to how it works in practice. And look, I, I'd planned for us to talk about it today, but maybe we should push it for a later episode. Questions of whether we have the technical capability to do this, to build and then operate nuclear submarines. And while I'm intrigued by the other areas of potential cooperation, we don't really have any details yet. And really, subs are where I'm most nervous right now. So look, look but let's push all that to a future episode and, and, and finish off by talking a bit about France. We have you know, major outrage. We've seen the recalling of France's ambassadors to the US and to Australia. It really does seem to be genuine fury. I'm not sure you know, how much of it is the loss of a valuable contract, how much of it is the embarrassing way that this was dropped upon them in, in really humiliating circumstances, and how much of it is that there is a, a presidential election coming up in the new year. But look, probably all of them matter. Alan, look, how much does it matter that the French are so upset in this case? No. No, it's just it's just the frogs and they're always poncing around and complaining. And in any case, they don't speak our language. And as Barnaby Joyce told them, the bastards just don't appreciate all that the Aussies did for them in the First World War. <laughs> Helen. Um, <laughs> look, more, more seriously, yeah, I, I think it does matter because, you know, France is a is a serious player. We discussed on the podcast before, Darren, that one of the, I thought, one of the most sort of interesting and 
valuable innovations of the Morrison government was the development of ministerial level trilateral talks between India, France and Australia. And I'm sure that that's, well, we, we know that a, a meeting in the margins of New York was cancelled by the French because of that. So yeah, there are consequences. And, you know, sort of more generally on, on this point, if you take Maurice Payne in Kabul a couple of Months ago, you know, you spoke of the fact then that she didn't mention to Ashraf Ghani the imminent Australian embassy pullout. And then, you know, Morrison deceiving or at the the very least dissembling in front of Macron just before all this happened. Our diplomatic reputation really is badly damaged, I think. I mean, I certainly don't agree with the execution. And this has been a huge focus in online discussion. But to me, it just doesn't compare to the strategic Rubicon that we've crossed in doing this in the first place. Uh, sorry, Darren, but th- look, that's that's your second Rubicon crossing for the <laughs> podcast. Could you just clar- clarify for me what you mean by this? Oh, Alan, you're you're exposing my secrets, you know, specifically the fact that I, I have very few original ideas, but I steal them outright from others. And, and so in this case, the Rubicon metaphor comes from my ANU colleague, Roy Medcalf, who published a piece in the in the Finn Review, I think the day before yours, on the AUKUS decision. So maybe we should get him on the podcast to ask him what he meant. But let, look, let me hazard my answer. One, I think anything with the word nuclear in our defence policy is a Rubicon crossed. It's not weapons, yes, but it's an entire domain which is unfamiliar to us and we've had reasons in the past to be to be you know somewhat sceptical about. And so look, I think that is a Rubicon crossed. And secondly, to get back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, I think this is notable as in its strength as a signal to to Beijing and the region. And I I haven't really seen us making something like this before. Like we're sticking our head up even more so than usual, more so than in the quad, more so than in other decisions we've made that have upset Beijing. And, and, And really, you know, we'll be making Beijing very unhappy. And I sort of this gets back to whether or not our contribution to a deterrent is important and necessary for the future of the region. You know, I see an argument that it is, but that's that's where it comes from, the Rubicon language. But look, back to back to France. Aren't they just going to revert? They'll have their tantrum. Won't they just revert to acting in their in their long-term interests, you know, and and, and engaging in cooperation when it's in their interest to do so? Yeah, maybe, but their interpretation of what is their interests will change as a result of the humiliation, I think. Mm. And I guess if Marine Le Pen wins the presidential election in, in April, that will change yeah, yet again. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would observe, though, for all the concerns about US credibility and staying power, to me, these seem to be magnified in the case of Europe, you know, which doesn't face the geographic imperative to be here. You know, if things get really hairy and really contentious, the cost of Europe staying involved is going to rise. And to me, that makes it even more likely that they would depart when compared to the US. Does that go for the UK as well? Or since Brexit, do you not consider them Europeans? <laughs> no, I have the same concerns. They do not face the same geographic imperative either. And so while I see more merit in their participation than you do, I wouldn't want to be relying upon them other than in the technical you know, sub-cooperation aspects. But look, I, I, I can't deny it. This is a bad look for Australia. It is ham-fisted diplomacy. It's not something that is new to us, unfortunately. It's. I find it really frustrating because it has meant so much of the focus has been on the French reaction. 
And I don't think there's been enough on the bigger questions, which we're grappling with today. And I really, I mean, I'm curious, I mean, on a, on a just a practical level, why we felt the need for such secrecy. Like, well, what's the worst that could have happened if we'd told Macron and his people like a week or two prior? I mean, even if they'd leaked it, would that have really scuppered the entire deal? I, I don't see it's likely. And I do wonder at the balance of involvement from different government agencies here. Like how much was DFAT running the process? How much were they consulted about the consequences? Or was this something that was really being done by the Prime Minister's office and by defence with less consideration for some of the di- diplomatic fallout? I've seen no reference anywhere to, to DFAT having been involved in any of this is the way it happens stories. <laughs> we'll have to rely on our reporter friends to try and dig into that story a little bit more. Look, Alan, we've been going for a long time and thanks to those listeners who are still with us. Let's wrap things up with, I think, the point, though, that this is a conversation we are going to continue, need to continue and perhaps get some guests involved. But let's try and wrap up with a final thought. And I'll let you have the last word, so I'll go first. Even though I've made the case today for the merits of this decision, I want to be clear that my primary reaction is that this is really scary. You know, Australia's security situation has deteriorated so much that our government, likely without too much political opposition, um, has decided that we need nuclear power submarines. It's a big deal and it's terrifying. And I'm sure there are listeners who feel closer to Alan's view, maybe they feel even more stronger than Alan and maybe they're like thoroughly repulsed by this announcement. And to those of you, I would simply say, you know, ask yourself, are you repulsed? Because in your considered and detailed model of the strategic environment, of Chinese intentions, of US staying power, plus Australia's geography, our industrial capabilities and our budget envelope, that you see a a different and maybe even a radically different pathway to a stable region that is somewhat consistent at least with our national interests or are you just like me afraid like that that's a totally yeah i think normal reaction you know we've been living in a, a relative geopolitical nirvana for a few decades now and that is the exception not the rule across history and perhaps things now are just reverting back to the mean which is more dangerous and more precarious. And my final point, you know, whatever your answer is on this and your view on this, a peaceful endpoint to this process, some kind of strategic equilibrium or balance is only going to occur when all sides feel secure. You know, the cliched paradox that I first learned from early 1990s Simpsons episodes, if you want peace, you must prepare for war, that does apply. There is a need for deterrence. But we also don't want war. We also don't want things to spiral into, you know, what would be a devastating conflict. And, you know, to avoid that, everyone needs to feel a measure of security, Australians, Americans and Chinese. And we don't get stability until we have an answer for how that is going to happen. The point here is that while people aren't really ready yet to talk about the concept of reassurance, I hope that we get there sooner rather than later. Alan, the last word to you. I need to say, Darren, that I'm not as terrified as you by what you describe as the deterioration of Australia's security situation. I see growing Chinese power, both economic weight and military capability. And, you know, you can add up the changes in the balance of forces. I can see a more nationalistic and assertive pattern of 
Chinese foreign policy, although, as you've shown in your own work, its coercive actions have, to put it mildly, had only mixed success. I'm not as sensitised as you to the end of the geopolitical nirvana of the recent decades, because I, I remember the terrible risks of the Cold War as well. And I know from that that we can manage and think our way out of danger. But for me, AUKUS takes us backwards. And although I see the benefits of nuclear-powered submarines and the, in some circumstances, and the loss of sovereignty involved may only be relatively greater than with the joint strike fighters, it's still much more obvious. And in any case, we still need to be sure that large subs are what we will want you know, in three decades' time. Anyway, look, it was really good to get this off our chests and I remain your faithful colleague and friend. And I yours. This is something we'll keep talking about. So let's wrap things up with reading, listening and watching. Do you have anything for us this week? On this podcast, we focus for obvious reasons on China as an international actor. But if I've learned one thing from you, Darren, it's the importance of domestic drivers in foreign policy. See, I am listening. So we certainly need to understand what's going on on the home front. And I just wanted to mention three things that I read in the past week addressing the interesting combination of developments going on in Beijing at the moment. Talk about the importance of common prosperity, the crackdown on consumer tech companies and so on. So for non-specialists, I recommend an article, a speech and a podcast. The article is the East Asia Forum Analysis from colleagues at the ANU, What to Make of China's Drive Towards Common Prosperity. The speech is Kevin Rudd, to the Asia Society recently, Xi Jinping's pivot to the state. And for a more relaxed discussion, you know, while you're walking or on the treadmill, the Seneca podcast, What's the Deal with the Red New Deal? from Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn interviewing Lizzie Lee and Jude Blanchett from CSIS. Thanks, Alan. I'm going to go far away from international affairs, but instead continue with my Ezra Klein fanboydom because I think I recommended his Afghanistan piece just recently. Two podcast episodes from the Ezra Klein Show podcast in recent months. The first is an interview with Annie Murphy-Paul, which is on the human mind and how the operation of our mind is very much dependent on, on the context and that we, like, we think differently in an office than we do outside, you know, and that the movement of our bodies generally can actually have a major impact on how we think rather than this idea that our minds operate like computers, which they don't. The second is another episode, which is with L.M. Sakasas, who writes about technology. There are about 40-odd questions about technology, and they go through a number of them on the podcast. And in particular, for our listeners who use Twitter extensively, please, I, I urge you just to listen to the first 15 minutes or so where they cover how the use of Twitter changes you. But look, the whole thing is packed full of insight. One example is how the rise of Google search and search engines on the internet have made us less social because we don't talk to our friends and families for advice about what to do and what to buy and what to see and so forth in the world. So really interesting and thought-provoking. On that note, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and thanks, as always, to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon.